In her book, When the Heart Waits, author Sue Monk Kidd tells a story. She's gathered with others at the Episcopal Conference Center in North Carolina. I don't know what kind of conference or how many people or why they were gathered there, but it had to be something churchy because they started with a spiritual exercise. At the opening session, everyone was handed a sheet of construction paper, colorful construction paper, and they were told to tear it into a shape that represented their life, which is kind of interesting. Think for a second, what sort of shape would yours be? What color do you pick? Just imagine in your mind, tearing off the pieces of paper and seeing the shape emerge. Well, the participants got to work creating the shapes and tearing away the little pieces and sculpting what uh, Sue Monk Kid calls lovely, colorful shapes. Sounds like fun. And they collected the shapes and put them up on a board in a beautiful collage. This is a feel-good moment when you're at a conference and I would be ready for the next thing. But then, someone came around with a big glass bowl to each person in the room and had them place in it the little pieces of paper that each of them had torn off to make the shape. They collected in this bowl, as Sue Monk Kid puts it, the confetti of scars and torn places we would like to be rid of. And that bowl was brought lovingly, tenderly, gently, and placed on the altar. As I think about that scene, I find myself in my mind just staring at that bowl, full of scraps, and imagining my own torn scraps from my life and feeling at a loss with what to do with them. Because <clears throat> there are wounds that resist healing. There are questions that go unanswered. There are parts of us we try to ignore, and things broken that can't easily be fixed. The world is full of torn scraps. But in the face of all the torn scraps, <clears throat> of ourselves and our world, our passage from Joel today proclaims a powerful truth. God will restore and more because that is who God is. God has the wisdom and skill and the fierce determination to sort through all the torn and broken pieces, to recreate them into something more beautiful than we can imagine. God will restore and more because that is who God is. We're going to take a look this morning at the book of Joel. Anybody know the book of Joel by heart? It's not one that we're super familiar with, right? Other than some of these famous passages. So I'm going to spend a little more time on context this morning. And if you want a five-minute version of the book of Joel, look up the Bible Project video on the book. It's really great. All right, setting of Joel. We don't really know anything about who the prophet Joel was, other than that his father's name is Pethuel and that the name Joel means Jehovah is God. It's hard to determine when the book was written. Read five commentaries, get five different opinions, possibly sometime after the exile and the rebuilding of the temple. The temple is working. This is important to the book. The theme of Joel is much more clear, which is the day of the Lord. Now, it's not Advent yet, so this is going to be a little Advent preview, right? We talk about the day of the Lord in Advent. 
So many of the prophets took up this theme, the day of the Lord. And we often think of the day of the Lord as a future day of judgment. When God decisively defeats evil, everything is made right. And it is. But the way scripture talks about the day of the Lord is sort of more similar to the way a Californian talks about earthquakes. There's lots of smaller ones, but we're waiting for the big one. (laughs) When it comes to the day of the Lord, there will be a big one. But there's lots of little ones in between. Anticipatory days of the Lord. When the Lord as king shows up to confront evil, whether that's an external enemy to his people or evil within his own people, and bring about salvation and righteousness. Think about the Exodus event. God shows up to judge Pharaoh and Egypt for what they'd done to God's people, and he brings them out of slavery. That's a little mini picture of the day of the Lord before the big one. So what's going on in the book of Joel? Joel writes in the midst of an enormous crisis, which he describes in chapters one and two. It's a one-two punch invasion of locusts and a drought. What do both of those things take away? Food. It's a big deal. Now, I have never seen an invasion of locusts, thanks be to God. The cicadas are bad enough. But this is not just something, that's this, this locust swarm, it's not something that's way back when. It happens as recently as now, 2020, East Africa. You can look up pictures. It can cause serious damage. Because we're not talking just a few insects. We are talking swarms, billions of insects breeding really, really quickly. And it could be that the drought that Joel mentions is what was behind the swarm. That's kind of what was the case in 2020 in East Africa, climate change. We have eyewitness accounts of these swarms, including one that covered 2,000 square miles and had an estimated 24,420 billion insects, layers of insects, just eating everything in their path. No wonder Joel describes them like an invading army, fierce, coming in waves, just totally flattening things in their path. Now, Palestine in that time period had three major crops, grain, wine, and olive oil. And the locusts destroyed them all. It's all gone. Just imagine looking outside at the leaves and the plants and the grass, and it's just stripped. It's just brown out there for miles and miles and miles. And imagine that's the only place you get your lunch from. It's not there. You can't feed your animals, can't feed anything. Just devastating. Joel presents that devastation as the judgment half of the day of the Lord. Remember, the day of the Lord is always judgment and mercy. The Lord thunders at the head of his army, that army of locusts. His forces are beyond number. Mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It's dreadful. Who can endure it? Now, unlike the other prophets, Joel doesn't specifically name the sin of the people. He's well-versed enough with the scriptures. We probably assume that people know. They've read Micah. They've read Nahum. They've heard. They know their sin. But what Joel does emphasize is that this plague of locusts has made it impossible for the people to conduct worship in business-as-usual mode because they have no grain for the grain offerings. They have no wine for the drink offerings. They cannot offer the daily sacrifices of the covenant as God requires because the materials are gone. I think judgment isn't primarily punishment, just pain that gets us to shape up and fall in line. Judgment is the thing that gets our attention and tells us something's not right. It's kind of like if your body has been under too much stress and you end up either with depression or a heart attack. Something's not right here. 
Business as usual has to stop. Now, it's also possible that for the people to whom Joel was writing that worship was actually part of what was wrong. We know that was often true in Israel from the other prophetic books, that either they're you know, worshiping but they're oppressing poor people or their worship is mixed with all other stuff. It could be that their worship itself was not pure. And if that's the case, then once again, the judgment is less of a spanking and more of a mercy. I will take away the things that make up for your worship so you cannot keep on worshiping me wrongly. Sometimes the thing that feels like judgment for sin is the very thing that can stop us in our tracks and turn us another way so we can be free. So again, the people are in really dire straits here. There's no food. If there's a drought, then the water is low. They cannot even maintain their half of the covenant in worship. Now what? So Joel says, sound the alarm. Gather the elders, gather everyone. Priests, fall on your faces before the altar. Weep and cry out to the Lord. Spare your people, Lord. Do not make us an object of scorn among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? And in the narrative, the people do cry out. They repent, and the Lord turns. In 2.18, then the Lord was jealous, meaning filled with passion for his land, and he took pity on his people. And the book turns from devastation to restoration. When God's people cry out, God responds, for that is who God is. 2.13, the Lord says, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. God wants his people to flourish, which is exactly why he stops us in our tracks sometimes. You are going the wrong way. Turn around. I am over here. When God's people cry out, God responds and God restores. Starting in verse 19, right before our passage, God promises reversal of all the devastation the locusts and the drought caused. Remember, the locusts took away the grain, the wine, and the oil. 2.19, the Lord says, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. We see the same thing in our passage in verse 24. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. In 2.20, the Lord says he'll drive the horde of locusts away and drown them in the Red Sea. Oh, sorry, the Dead Sea. Not quite as good of a comparison, but it is like the Exodus. Just like the Lord did for the Egyptians, he'll do for the locusts. Drown them. And then the prophet turns toward rejoicing. All the things affected by the awfulness are called to rejoice in their restoration. The land, in verse 21. The animals, in verse 22. And, of course, the people. And this is where our passage begins today. Be glad, people of Zion, God's chosen people. Here come the rains, just like before. No more drought, no more locusts. You will eat and be full. Verse 25, this verse that so many of us know, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Well, repay here is the word shalom. That word that has such deep resonances of wholeness, restoration, being the way that God meant things to be. 
I will make whole to you what the locusts ate. I will make whole to you what was taken from you. I will restore. I will bring shalom. And when I do, you'll raise a hallelujah. For I'm Yahweh, and that is who I am. When restoration comes to what had just been barren for miles, you know for real that it is the Lord and none other, because only the Lord can do that. The Lord restores, for that is who he is. And that in itself is good news, but Joel doesn't stop there. The Lord will not just restore, but restore and more, for that is who he is. The second half of our passage are the Pentecost verses, that the Lord will pour out his spirit on all flesh. So not just restored to the way things were, but more. A promise that the cycle won't keep happening. Sin, judgment, mercy. Sin, judgment, mercy. Sin, judgment, mercy. No, the cycle will stop. The Spirit of God will inhabit God's people in a new way that will be lasting. A way that brings true restoration that they've never known before. A way that gathers all those torn pieces of our lives and puts them back together in goodness and beauty we could never have imagined. When things have been broken, sometimes all we crave is for things to go back to the way they were, before the locusts and the drought, before the pain, before the change, before the bewilderment. When our human eyes look at the torn pieces of paper in the bowl, we can see the shape they used to be, but God can see the shape they will be, and he can do it. God will restore, and more, because of who God is. So now that we're all clear on Joel, I want to draw out three points I think have special relevance for us today. Because as a church community, and frankly as a society, I think we're in a space of torn pieces. We know the shape of before. We do not yet see or agree on the shape of what will be. And we stare at the torn pieces and we wonder, what do we do with this? But you know, in some ways, that's also just life before Jesus comes again. It's painful, but it's filled with the faint scent of something beautiful. And so as we sit together in this middle space between what was and what God will do, and as I prepare to be gone for a few weeks of rest, I want to highlight three encouraging truths for us from this tempestuous and dramatic little book. First, God will restore and more, but humility precedes restoration. Before this beautiful section of restoration, Joel, as I said, pictures the people flinging themselves upon God's mercy, literally on their faces before the Lord. From nursing infants to the oldest among them, even those who should be on their honeymoon. And beginning with the religious leaders, they cast themselves down before the Lord in fervent prayer, lament, repentance, questions, reminding God that his own name is at stake. God has a stake in our future for his name's sake. 
Our gospel passage, too, reminds us again. Did you notice we've had this theme of uh, humility and exaltation? Again, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, while those who humble themselves will be exalted. The sinner who knows his need for mercy receives it. The one who thinks he's better than that guy does not receive mercy. What we are experiencing here is not punishment. But we have been stopped in our tracks. We were not able to worship in business as usual. And we've been fighting it, which is normal. (laughs) That's what you do when you're stopped in your tracks. It's also part of grief. How do we get here? Why? Can we stop it? Can we go back? Whose fault is it? What if, in this next season as a church, we begin to lay down some of our defenses and just look at what is? What if we fling ourselves before the altar of the Lord together and cry out, teach us, Lord, restore us, help us? Where are you? It hurts. I don't like it. Do not let the enemy triumph over us. Grant us your salvation. You have got our attention. (laughs) Help us. God will restore and more. And our humility comes first. Second, since God will restore and more, Joy can and should live side by side with our lament. We're not waiting for joy. Our section of Joel, just like in the lament psalms, like Psalm 126, is so sure of God's restoration, it portrays it as something that has already happened. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice. When we're in pain, joy, to speak of that, can kind of feel invalidating, right? What's the deal here? And yet pain is rich soil for joy when it pushes us towards God's presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. And I think no one understands this better than the black church. Cole Arthur Riley, the author of the Black Liturgy's social media stuff, as well as a wonderful book, she writes this. Joy, which once felt frivolous to me, has become a central virtue in my spirituality. I'm convinced that if we are to survive the weight of justice and freedom, we must become people capable of delight and people who have been delighted in. So I hope for myself as I go away, for you as you remain, that we can find joy even in this season. That we can sing loudly and defiantly, off-key if you need to, That we can eat good food with someone, someone we haven't caught up with in a while, someone we don't yet know. That we can rest and trust that God is at work. We don't need to figure it out all now. We can rest in what the Lord is doing. We can play. We can eat tacos. God is good now. God will restore and more so we can rejoice even in our sorrow. And third, since God will restore and more, we can dream. 
The Spirit has already been poured out in our midst. We're not waiting for that anymore. We read this passage about visions and dreams and think of visions as special revelation, and sometimes it can be, but I think it's also vision, imagination for the way that God wants things to be. It's the ability to look at the ruins of a house and see it has good bones. The ability to look at what the locusts have stripped bare and imagine it filled with greenery as vast as a jungle. It's an expanded imagination for the torn pieces of our lives, our church, Highwood, our world. We were like those who dream. Now, for some of us, that sort of vision comes easily, and for others, it's more difficult. And that's okay, because we're in this together. Since God will restore and more, we can dream here. The last chapter of Joel describes the big one. That day of the Lord when the sin of God's people is cleansed once and for all, for judgment begins with the house of God. When God judges the oppressors of God's people and with the land itself is blessed with abundance and shalom once and for all. It's an amazing picture of future restoration. But the last sentence of the book is not about the future, but about the now. The Lord dwells in Zion. Church of the Redeemer, the Lord dwells here. His presence is with us. And that is why I can rest and go away and say with absolute confidence, God will restore and more here. For that is who he is. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.